forge your inner armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. Well, welcome, Doc. We're here for another episode of the podcast, and we're recording in a little bit different location. Oh, this is is unbelievable out here. We're literally out in the open at this picnic table. Secret uh, compound. At Greg's secret compound. That's right. It's it's uh, We're sitting here surrounded by the pines. Gorgeous. And, you know, for all we know, there are bears and <laughs> sasquatches and chupacabras that might emerge at any moment. So if that happens, dear listeners... Uh, Call 911 for us, but uh, yeah, we have a beautiful, beautiful spring day sitting outside here in the uh, in the piney woods, and we're going to be talking about learning. Yeah. We're not talking about learning again in the in the in a in a classroom or at a university or a lab because learning is very organic. And if you think about it, a lot of learning occurred in places like this. People learned how to how to live and how to function and how to chop down trees and build houses and. And so much of, of learning, while we sometimes put that in that maybe more of an academic context, all of life is about learning and developing and growing. And, you know, in every context in our lives, right, Doc? Yeah. I mean, when you think about relationships, what are you learning good and bad in relationships? When you think about how you handle different stressors in life, there's a learning process that goes on. When we talk about optimization, of the human brain and body, um, the foundational element is that we believe that a human can learn and change. You know, uh, the things about a human is that, that one of the greatest things is how well we can adapt to things and learn how to function in different environments under different stress- stressors. One of the worst things about being a human is we can learn to adapt and respond to different stressors and, and create those as, as normal for us. Um, but I wouldn't do the, the job that I do if I didn't believe that people could learn and change. And that even in the worst situation, the human brain and body is so amazing that it can learn new pathways. It can learn new responses. It can learn to be at its best in pressure situations, you know? And I would assume really at the core of the listener out there, there's probably a reason that you're listening to the podcast is you believe that you can learn and hopefully you will learn something from the podcast and that by learning, you can change how you do things. Um, change and learning is at our core and that's how, when we exist, as we grow, it comes from that. Well, you know, Doc, you've talked an awful lot about how stress is necessary. I mean, we talked about Dr. Selyer and, you know, the kinds of what he called it, eustress and distress, but the notion that without stress, we don't develop. And development is, you know, as we sit out here in the woods and we think about uh, the different kind of people that have lived in these places, right? You know, there were the Native Americans who came here who had to figure out how to survive, how to build a community, how to do things. And that was a human development process. They had to learn of the natural world. They had to learn how to adapt, how to feed themselves, how to build shelters, how to survive. And then 
over time, others came along, right? And they had to build and adapt. And we're constantly doing that. And if you remove the stress or the pressures, the stressors that sort of force adaptation and evolution and development, then we, we're kind of flat. We don't progress. We never really develop much. And I think that there is sometimes an aversion. I wish that I had an existence that was stress-free or I had an existence where I wasn't challenged. But really, that's a prescription for not growing, right? Right. And we've talked about that, whether the way that we look at a lot of different things physiologically in the body, they need stress to survive. I mean, the heart needs a component of stress. But we want to manage that stress and balance that stress so that for every equal stress, there's an equal recovery. And there's right. this balance of the autonomic nervous system that is, has the need for pressure in it. The, the autonomic nervous system uh, requires stress in order to be able to handle situations over time. So when we're doing things like teaching breathing and coherence, we're creating more flexibility within the autonomic nervous system so that it can be able to adapt to stress and still function at a very high level. Um, learning happens best when there's more elasticity. There's more, when I can teach somebody how to control their autonomic nervous system, uh, they're going to be significantly better at learning. This is why you know, a few episodes ago when we talked about uh, the humanity of the college athlete, this is why therapy works so much better when we can teach the autonomic nervous system to have more elasticity and more bandwidth to it so it can go in not with a, a very tight uh, overstressed system, but an open stress because they can now, the student can respond better to therapy and also coaching athletes, whatever you're doing, working in the workplace, uh, the system learns better. There's different ways or capacity of learning based on how the autonomic nervous system is functioning. And that's very important for educators, coaches, employee, employers to understand is the people you're working with are coming to you at a different place on the autonomic nervous system and their ability to function no matter what their innate abilities are, their ability to function in that situation and to learn and to perform is solely going to be based on where they are in the autonomic nervous system. If they're in a sympathetic fight, flight, straight state, running from a lion in their mind, they are not in a space where their capacity to learn is, that very, is very high. Right. Same as if they're going too slow and their brain is getting out of gear and they're not focusing well. Um, they're not picking up the information. I've got a colleague that I work with that I can tell when he's not focusing and I'm thinking I should just stop my conversation. Sometimes I do. I just stop and wait for him to come along with his focus because in a sense, maybe because I've been around it so much, um, I can see his lack of focus before he can see it. And I see that I'm, I'm wasting the next four sentences. And maybe our listeners know people like that where like, why are you even talking to the person, right? Because that autonomic nervous system has gone in too much of a parasympathetic state where it's checking out. And so there are different levels across the autonomic nervous system. 
that are going to be more receptive to the learning process. So, so let's back up or zoom out a little bit and look at a, try to form a big picture of how humans develop mm-hmm. in general, right? How, what human development looks like from the time, you know, you're, you're born um, to you know, adulthood or whatnot. But then also how we develop particular skills or, behavior, or behaviors or abilities, whether positively or negatively, right? And we've been talking offline a little bit of maybe sort of a model for thinking about this. Mm-hmm. And we've been talking about sort of three phases or stages and begins with training. And then it becomes learning in the sense of educational learning. And then it becomes growth. So let me just kind of lay this out. I'm curious to get you to like drill down. But so. So training is when we, we begin to drill repetitive behaviors, right? That's muscle memory. That's forming certain things. So let's take the example of how we learn language, right? A child doesn't start off getting at one years old, getting, you know, grammar lessons. They learn how to say mama, dada, the point of the dog, right? They start right. learning words. And you know, and they begin to learn how to form vowel sounds, which is why, as I understand it, our accent is very difficult to change as we get older because when our brains are very plastic, uh, when we're just a few months old, we begin to hear how vowels sound and that becomes sort of laid down in us. And so that's how we say, you know, certain kinds of words. And so that is a sort of a repetitive training thing. Um, you learn how to form words, you learn how to recognize words, you learn how to point at things, right? But at a certain point, okay, the child goes to school and is taught, and this is where the learning or education phase begins, you begin to learn about language, you learn about English, you learn what verbs are, and you learn what nouns are, and you learn the proper way to conjugate a verb, right? And you learn, right, how to read a sentence, and you begin to learn some of those things. And that provides context because you've been saying these things. Now you're learning what, in a sense, what they mean, what the context, what the principles are. And then finally, you, in a sense, begin to take that out uh, and use it. So you begin in school to write essays or term papers. You uh, go out and tr- travel and meet people in the workplace and you speak and you learn and you grow, you learn other people's speaking styles, other people's accents. You begin to test your language skills. You, you write a letter and email and your boss tells you that it's really poorly done and to redo it, right? And over time, your capacity for language increases and that's growth, right? Now, we could say the same thing about music or sports or relationships or, mm-hmm. you know, anything that it starts with this sort of skill, repetitive skill development, then proceeds to this broader level of understanding, and then finally becomes growth as we sort of test that understanding and those skills out in the real world. Does that all make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right on with what, the way that we learn. So now I want you to drill down because of all of your experience, especially with children up through business executives, athletes, and maybe start to think about at those stages, what have you observed, what works, what doesn't work, what enhances that kind of development and what maybe kind of retards it or inhibits it? Yeah. So that first, like we said earlier, um, first, the, the nervous system's receptivity 
to uh, learning, uh, our unconscious side is always going to dominate because it's going to protect us. And so it's very difficult when you have a, a young child who's under extreme levels of stress uh, that people don't misdiagnose them as having an attention disorder or a lot of times a learning disability when they're just trying to survive. And that's going to play out in every stage of development is that um, if we're in survival mode, it's really hard to even learn the foundational uh, things that occur in development like language. But that um, repetitiveness in the brain is something that um, when you first watch a child learn and you're looking at brain imaging, um, it's very interesting. Let's take the alphabet, for instance. The letter A is just an abstract shape, right? That's all it is. It's nothing magical about the letter A. And if you look at imaging with a child um, and you show them the letter A and you show them a scribble, their brain sees both of those things. And if you watch the, the, how the neuron's firing, uh, talking about evoked potential, the timing is exactly the same between when they see the letter A and they see the scribble, they see it in, they, their brain fires up in the exact same amount of time because they're just two abstract shapes. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Now what happens is the more I reinforce, that's the letter A, okay? So I reward the individual. So this is a basic level reward. A, yes. B, no, 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 that's not a B. Okay, that's an A, okay? And all of us did this, right? We, the timing of that reaction in the brain stays the same, but then like it just happens almost instantaneously with enough reinforcement. Now there's different models for what is that enough, enough reinforcement, but all of a sudden the neuron, you put those two images in front of the child and the neuron responds four times faster right. to the letter A. Well, what just happened at that moment in time? learning right. the brain learned right now what's interesting is that every brain responds differently to that right so i've got sally who her her brain's been firing off on the letter a in the first month of kindergarten right and i've got billy who he's still looking at the two images and it's six months into the year and his brain isn't firing, okay? So the way that we do education, okay, is we just keep moving along because they're both, you know, five years, six months. So they both have to be doing this at this pace, but they're not learning at the same pace, right? Now, this model will follow you throughout everything that you learn. When you first learn to throw a ball, when you walk, when you, you, know, you learn how to balance yourself so that you can walk and go up a set of stairs and those things. This is all this like firing in the brain that initially it's, it's the same, but then all of a sudden you learn something new, okay? And again, that comes through reinforcement. You know, if I say data, but it's really mama, right? I'm still in that stage where the brain is firing the same with the same 
auditory output. But the moment I start to say data correctly, then you'll see that that firing, when that person, that child recognizes data, that they're going to trigger that response. So being able to track that brings up a larger question in how we do education, right? Um, Which is, you know, another discussion down the road, but I think it's something to throw out there. I would say what happens to Sally and Billy? One, Sally is bored out of her mind if we're waiting for everybody else to catch up, right? Or Billy is getting left behind because I'm not looking at his brain and seeing, is he ready to move on? And Sally might be able to move at a much faster pace if I would be looking at her brain or something as basic as doing good baseline assessment with kids at the right periods of time will let you know, are these uh, evoked potentials improving that we tailor make education based on the person's capacity? So that's that initial like training, base level learning. There's something that's going on in the brain at that time. You know, as you're saying that, I got to thinking about the different ways that, you know, we talk a lot about how neural pathways, we use that term all the time, but you know, if, if the listeners were to think about, you have a hundred billion neurons, which are cells in your brain and that as electrical signals fire through, uh, they make these kind of paths and the paths form around connections, behaviors, activities, and the more that you are able to form those paths and the, the more complex those paths are, the more you can associate different things. So let's take a positive example. You're talking about, you know, the child recognizing the letter A. Think about the different sensory inputs. So something that we've all done with our children or seen done with children, right? When you say, what is the, you're pointing at the picture of the cow in the picture book. Yeah. You say, what does the cow say? Right. House is moo, moo, right? The child at a very young age is associating an image of a cow, which is probably a cartoon image. Doesn't actually mo- look very much like a real cow. Yeah. It's kind of a children's cartoon image. But there's something about that shape and that color with the spots. And the child begins to associate that visual shape with a sound, mm-hmm. right? And now that's grooving a pathway in their brain, right? that is going to associate those things. On the negative side, if you think about how a neural pathway can be grooved and, 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 and maybe impede learning is when you groove the wrong path. So here, you know, take some skill. Um, you know, you're trying to learn how to swing a golf club and you learn the wrong way, right? right. You learn a bad and swing and then that. you just practice it. You go out to the driving range every day and you just practice the wrong swing for years now all you've done is groove a bad swing or or maybe another thing is this is going back to the language thing is you learn how to pronounce a word incorrectly yeah right because you grew up around something and they always pronounced that word incorrectly or you know in a particular way uh, your mom or whatever always called it this. And, you know, you just grew up and you all, and then when you get in, a, you're an adult, you go off to college and you say that word and everyone laughs at you and you go, but, right, but you've reinforced that. So what we do with children at that very young age, when we're introducing that training phase of development where it's a lot of repetition, 
an association. Um, maybe they're not understanding the educational phase of the big principles, but they're just, they're just sort of just grooving how to do things. We really are setting those grooves. They're going to last a very, very long time, right, Doc? Yeah, and it's going to be hard to, you have to kind of go back to the basics. And I think the place that we, we really see this is um, in visual development. Okay, so I want everybody to think about different ways that you can learn and we use our senses to take in information, which we've talked about that. Like many times we get lost in our thoughts and feelings and emotions and behaviors because we're not really taking in our senses correctly, right? We're just relying on the frontal lobe and not being present on those senses. But when we think of early development and the use of senses, sensory input okay um language uh comprehension okay now expression does involve motor skills okay because i have to activate the sensory motor strip which then activates different things within the the mouth and the vocal cords and those kind of things but comprehension of language understanding language has little to no involvement of muscle control now think about that for a second, okay? There's a difference between how I'm taking in something that I hear at an early age and something that I see, okay? Because vision involves not just the shape of the eye, okay, and how clear I see something, but it has, a, and we've talked about this many times, it, it has this muscle component to this, this synchronization of the muscles that has to happen in order for me to see data correctly. And if those eyes aren't synchronized, I'm going to see a double image and that child's never seen this before. So the double image, and it's very interesting when we fix this in kids, is they're like, oh, I never knew that there's only one letter there. I thought it was always two. Or I thought the letters were always supposed to be bouncing up and down. <laughs> they're bouncing up and down because there's not good synchronization or I, good eye control um, related to the muscles, okay? So what happens early on is we, we get through some of the language stuff, but we quickly, especially in the U.S., we want to get right into reading because that's what we're going to talk, talk about in the mom group or, you know, at work with my buddies, you know, hey, you know, Johnny read his first, you know, chapter book, right? Like this is big time. This is kind of like a medal of honor, right? is my kid has done this, but we start them to learn to read and that sense isn't ready to read because it involves so much coordination, right? So if I take Johnny, who's can't even walk on a balance beam or dribble a ball, and I'm trying to teach him to read, what Johnny is going to do is he's going to ingrain those patterns that you just talked about in a way that's negative he's going to find a way to compensate because he wants reinforcement. The child wants to be rewarded. They want to want that reinforcement. So he's going to find a way to read that may not be the best pathway to read. So this is very interesting when we watch kids at an early age when they're learning to read is there are two different types of ways, there's more patterns in that, but two primary ways that you'll watch in the brain, it light up as the person's learning to read. So you'll have one way in which 
uh, the visual areas of the brain will process it and then they'll send it over to the left side of the brain to the auditory side to sound the word out. So they see the letter C-A-T and they, they sound it out in their head or sometimes you'll see a child even do it verbally where there'll be cat and you'll watch the left side of the brain light up and now it becomes an auditory thing that they interpret that they hear the they hear the word cat they don't see the word cat they they see the letters hear it with cat and then the other area of their brain which now is going to uh process it again visually may input that or output that okay and you watch these three or four areas light up but then you watch a, a child who's learn they have good visual coordination and they can't they can take in more than one letter at a time they can take in eight letters at a time because the eyes have what is called a high degree of span of recognition and that's what a child must have to start them off as a good reader and span or width of recognition is based on eye muscle control so now we have a stage of learning that isn't just the input but it's what is the physiological being bringing to the table in its ability to learn. So in high span of recognition, kids, they now see more letters and they chunk. So it's not cat. They just see C-A-T and that puts in their mind an image immediately of a cat. And you watch the visual center skip the language center and create the visual image in the brain. And so now they're, they're processing much quicker what they're taking in or learning because their visual fields are good. Now, when we expand this out further, this is, and this is happens for adults too, is we become kind of um, blocked in our processing of things. And this is why you'll ask an adult, what'd you like better, the, the movie or the book? Oh, I, the movie, and I didn't like the book because it was harder for them to take that image that the writer was trying to create and turn it into a picture because they're using too much of their brain to do that. So I know one of the things that you've done a lot with is where you monitor a brain, adult, child, or whatever, while they're learning. Yeah. Right? So you put an EEG on them, and then while the child is doing a lesson or you know, reading a lesson or whatever, some kind of, you know, school educational activity, you're actually watching what they're doing. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, one of the things you've talked about is that that first thing you're saying where they're going, okay, C-A-T goes to the auditory side of the brain, C-A-T, cat. Oh, that's the thing with the tail. tail. It goes exactly. to yeah. meow, right? That works, but there's the term, there's a latency. Right, so latency in the system. So what happens? It's just slower. It you know if it's you know two milliseconds for the one child to see CAT and just see that as a as a almost like a um, you know as a block of letters. I mean, almost represents a pictogram. Yes, right. Like in Chinese, you just go that that block of letters means cat. I see the cat, but the one who has to slow down and work through the letters. Right, that takes them five milliseconds. So their 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 reading time and comprehension scores. It go takes down. them so much energy. Yeah, t- and, and it's exhaust. Yeah, like you say, it's exhausting. 
because our brain re- requires, right? I mean, 20% of our calories go to fuel our brain. Yeah. So now you're just using a huge amount of energy. That's why we become tired in those situations. T- literally, t- literally, physically tires you out to learn that way. Yeah. And when you, it's so interesting when I do this with kids. And again, this stuff, we're starting at a very early process, but this applies to everybody because now you're going to learn these pathways that you then carry into middle school, high school, college, the workplace. And you don't realize it, but you've developed pathways early on that are inhibiting your potential because you're using all these areas of the brain to do a task that was initially meant to be at a much quicker rate. So this is really interesting with kids where we can see it in imaging, but I can also see it in a simple task like this where I'll ask them, draw me a picture of this phrase, the cat jumped over the fence, okay? And so they'll draw a simple picture of it. And the one that the uh, auditory learner, I'll ask them, what color's the cat? And they'll look at me like I'm from Mars. Well, you didn't tell me what color the cat is. What color is the fence and how tall is the fence? I have no idea what you're talking about because they literally are sounding out the cat jumped over the fence and it becomes an auditory thing versus that's not what the writer intended. I mean, you're a writer, Greg, right? You have an image in your mind that you then, through words, put out on the page. And your hope isn't that the people will just read the words, right? What is your hope? That they'll see the image. You want them to see the image. You want them to see, it's not just a cat jumping over the fence. It's a black cat or whatever color cat. And the fence is this big. And I want to create this image for you. That's why in a really good reader who goes back to good muscle coordination in the eyes, you can never make a movie ever that will match the book. Right. I want to ask you this, whether or not, let's take Johnny, and I feel like we're using- Poor Johnny. We're pointing you, yeah, and it was always a cliche, it's always Johnny never Sally, you know, they can't read. Yeah. But there's poor Johnny who doesn't, who, you know, has all these things you're saying and he's sounding out cat, jump, moon, blah, 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 blah. But, but let's say Johnny has this tactile ability, mm-hmm. right? So you put him on the floor with blocks and he has this intuitive sense of how to snap the Legos together right? or how to build the erector set, right? And Johnny can go out to the workshop, you know, and go over here to the barn and he can start picking up tools and pieces of wood and sort of have this intuitive sense of how things fit together, Right. Or Johnny goes out to the, to the playground, the sports field, and has this intuitive sense for how to kick a ball or throw a ball that is a tactile physical thing or a visual thing that doesn't require the reading. And then, of course, that sets Johnny on this path. Johnny is a dumb jock. Johnny is going to be a stupid mechanic because Johnny isn't going to read you know, Hemingway novels, right? Yeah. And it sort of sets these kids up for these courses in life. And Johnny's IQ... Maybe just as, yeah. right? I mean, Johnny may have a higher IQ than, than Sally. I mean, you're a builder. I heard somebody once say to me, do you know how complex it was for carpenters, especially in days past, to build a staircase? How much, how much mm. geometry, skill set to build 
like a staircase that was true and use it with a minimum amount of wood. That was a real high IQ task. But Sally's reading Twilight novels in seventh grade and is getting accolades for how smart she is because she's reading, you know, Harry Potter, right? Johnny isn't doing that. He's just out there building stuff or he's mastering, you know, the sports field. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't necessarily mean that he has a lower IQ, but like you say, because of these visual things and how we learn and how we read, how do we take these things in, or he has a facility with numbers. He can just see numbers in his head come together, mm -hmm. right? And so mathematics, he excels at, and he doesn't so excel so well at the reading set. He takes the SAT and maxes out the math section and yeah. not the verbal section, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, so intelligence, learning, IQ, visual inputs, auditory inputs, all of this kind of comes together in a matrix of development. How do we, How do we facilitate that? And how do we sometimes maybe inadvertently inhibit it? Yeah, I think we, um, like we accept the fact that this child, Johnny's going to be a poor reader, so we're going to direct them in other ways. And, you know, I've had many an adult that will say, well, I'm just not a great reader. It's very interesting when I, um, we do a lot of assessments on pro athletes. We do a lot of uh, draft testing. And um, many times I will see that their visual convergence which is the ability to bring the eyes inward at around 16 inches and less, is very poor. Uh, more so than you'd see in the general population. That's not saying all athletes are that way, but we'll see that. We even see this uh, at one of our universities where we do all, we test all their athletes, so 600 athletes, is um, they, of those 600 athletes, compared to students on campus that aren't athletes, those athletes have... Uh, poor convergence and poor uh, some of the language skills, but their visual like divergence, which is looking out and further distant. out. So at 16 inches, right? So just, you know, because our eyes are binocular, we have two eyes, right? right? And we have to stereoscopically coordinate them, right? And you converge, you bring your eyes in closer. So if, if, the, if the listener takes their thumb Right. And at arm's length and brings it in closer, how long is that still sharp? And the closer it gets, your eyes have to converge to do that. But like, you know, you like to point out the, the page that we read from is always going to be 12 to 16, 16, yeah. 16 inches from, right? But I'll bet that same, you know, athlete you're talking about can see the ball in the air out there at, at 50, 50 feet. feet. And, what, and I always ask the question when I see some of these great athletes, it's like, did you be that or did you choose that or uh, was it kind of the one thing that you could really be successful in because maybe your visual development wasn't good and but what's interesting is we'll improve that so in our precision stage of inner armor it's all about getting that sensory input at the highest capacity as possible so many times when people think about vision they either think the lights are on or the lights are off so Either somebody can see or they can't see. But we wouldn't say that about any other muscles in your body, right? Like I, I look at an athlete and I'm going to say, well, how much can you squat? You know, how much can you bench press? How fast are you? And I'm going to be, these are all muscle questions. And it's not just, can you stand up, right? But we do that with the eyes. We do that with the eyes, even from the earliest stage of development, is we take them out of the mix. You know, we look at walking, you know, uh, crawling. Can they grasp something? Can they do all these other motor tasks? But we're not measuring what's going on 
visually. And um, I would say it's the most neglected thing across the board in academics and sports and in the workplace. But it's the most highly used thing and it's one of the most important things to our learning and development. So that's why number one when we're in inner armor is all about getting that visual coordination down. Not visual strength, uh, but visual coordination. I was telling you earlier offline about how I was meeting with uh, Dr. Gamich, who's our consultant on ocular motor. He has this doctoral fellowship in ocular motor movement in relation to sports and academics, which is, you know, one of very few people in the country. And I had the opportunity to be meeting with him yesterday and we were talking through things. I said, you know, Paul, tell me, you know, about like, you know, what's a good example of this, of this ocular strength, ocular coordination, whatever this is. Well, you know, imagine a kid sitting down at a piano, right? Or anybody, two people. And it's not the strength in your fingers, right? Like you can just bang on the keys and you actually might have greater strength than the next person. But when I teach you to play a piano piece, now you're using that muscle strength in a coordinated way to create this music. And so there's this coordination. And I thought, man, that is such a beautiful example of we just expect, hey, you got fingers, there's muscles there, boom, go at it, right? But that's not how it is with our eyes. Our eyes really need this kind of piano piano component to them that they can be very flexible in order for our learning to be optimal. You know, if, you know, as I think about it, um, a lot of our education system favors a very narrow framework of skill set, right? So like you say, if the page is 16 inches from your eyes and the computer screen is 16 inches away today or whatever, then again, you know, little Sally and Johnny, right? Sally is always the little reader, right? But Sally is super good at, at her eyes, are super good at coordinating her eyes at yeah. 16 inches away. So Sally excels when she's in elementary school at reading, by middle school, like I said, she's reading Harry Potter or whatever the kids are reading today and she's moved on to this and that and she's just got, and maybe she even goes into some field where she uses the computer a lot. She's doing graphic design or whatever and she's in front of this computer all the time and reads and we kind of value that and we reinforce it. But there's very few sports that are played 16 inches from your face. No, I mean, maybe, maybe boxing, you know, Mike Tyson is going to tag you, you know, because, but the thing is, is most sports are played and they require a divergence. And the other thing that strikes me is that in a lot of sports, it's not just the ability statically to see something far away, but it's something in motion. Right. It's a ball. Well, but in motion. Tracking. So it's a tracking. A ball is flying toward you and you have to catch it. So it's getting bigger as it's coming close to you or it's flying away from you or it's coming across. And the ability to sort of pick that up, move, track that, time that is a, is a completely different skill. And it's not necessarily a worse skill. Right. And yet in a lot of ways, our education system, uh, you know, uh, what kind of rewards Sally um, for her being able to, her eyes being able to function you know, really well, 16 inches, you know, away. Uh, but maybe Johnny, the education system isn't, you know, so he's going to, he's going to go find the things that he can do where he gets reinforcement, like on the sports field. Right. right. Yeah. And there is a very interesting thing the eyes do because the, 
the eyes and the brain can only work so fast, okay? And there are things in sports that come at you that are way faster than what you can neurologically process. You can process about 280 miles an hour, okay? Uh, but sometimes there, there are things, though what goes on in the brain as far as the neurons, but there's these things that are just lightning fast. And when you study the eyes, what you find out is we have this, it's really fascinating, is we have this ability to almost look into the future when we're looking at an object. This is why we can make these split-second decisions when it really, if you do the math, you shouldn't have been able to process that. And that's because as that ball is moving or that object, I mean, think how fast the spear is coming at somebody. That's well, the, fa- the, the, the fastball. We, we talked about this in the book. Major league fastball comes at you from the pitcher's hand to the plate in 0.4 seconds. Yeah. So, and it takes something like 0.25 seconds for that image to travel through your eye to your brain and back down to your hands, which means that you have one. 0.15 seconds to make a decision whether to swing or not. Yeah. Right? So things happen really quick and your brain has to process those. I always heard that uh, this was cool in, in soccer, excuse me, football, <laughs> right? That when they do the penalty kick, you know, they set up in front of the goalie, mm-hmm. that the distance of that penalty kick and the amount of time it takes from that ball to travel from, you know, the, the guy's foot to the goal is less time than it takes for the right that 0.25 seconds that it takes for the brain to register so in a sense the the goalie is and has to anticipate where you think it's going to go Mm -hmm. because it's almost impossible to react that fast now a lot of people say oh yeah fastballs and penalty kicks and whatever but you know we think about other situations in life we think about driving Mm -hmm. um we think about situations where we're going to put ourselves in where our ability to sort of cope with what's coming at us in life, you know, is really affected by our ability to, to sort of learn and integrate the visual, the auditory, the tactile. And that's right. Every, I would assume that every time you added a sort of another sensory input, you exponentially increase the complexity of this for the brain. Absolutely. And you want to make sure the sensory inputs are correct so that you're not adding more stress on the brain. Right. So if the brain is having to do that and listen to that and process it before it can ever even know what it was, okay, versus seeing the image of it, right, um, then you're just increasing more stress on the brain. You're having to use more electrical current, right? What's very fascinating is when we go and we work in uh, our databases now, probably over. 1,500 student-athletes, collegiate level. And because nobody works on this convergence and divergence, these are Division I athletes, right, who have probably been coached in their sports since they were 10 years old or younger, right? And they've seen everything. If they're a Division I golfer, Division I football player, right? And we look at their convergence and their divergence, which is the ability to play the piano, in a sense, with those muscles, right? that many times they are weaker than just what the normal population should be. And they've just out of athleticism and repeating things, they've gotten pretty good. But there's a ceiling there that if we improve that, it changes their athletic performance at an unbelievable level. And what we've seen, very interesting, 
in convergence in athletes, we see 150% improvement, 150% improvement in muscle coordination in about 10 weeks. Okay. That's going to increase the available time for them to process the fastball because their coordination is so much faster in their eyes that now their brain has more time to think about, okay, how am I going to position my hands to hit this ball with the bat? In divergence, which is interesting, which is looking out, we still see improvement. It's around 80 to 90%, but it's not the same as convergence, which to me is kind of a scientist says, oh, that's interesting. Where are they slightly more convergence deficient Because there's no reason one should be better than the other. And we improve both of them, which also improves their binocular vision and their depth perception, their peripheral awareness. Um, But it is interesting to see that. Uh, It's also interesting to see how you take this finely tuned athlete who you think has had everything addressed and all of a sudden you improve their visual coordination. It changes everything. We also see in the workplace. I go, we go into companies where we'll improve their visual coordination Like we can't go back to when they were five years old, right? But we can rework some of these things, right? We rework it and we'll see 25 to 30% improvement in processing speed. Well, if I'm an employer with an employee that now can process visually 25 to 30% faster, how much of what goes on in the workplace is, is visual, right? To me, that's another day and a half of work, Yeah, right? For sure. And it's more than that, it's, less stress on that person because they're not trying to play this piano piece that they have no coordination to play with and they're stumbling through it and it's taking all their energy. Their eyes are just flowing along, you know, like they're playing Beethoven with their eyes, right? And like I said earlier, we tend to just see vision as on-off switch, but it's not that. Vision's on a continuum based on your muscle coordination which we want to teach in all stages of learning. Early learning, before I even introduce the person to reading, I want, that, I want to know what that child's capabilities are so I don't do exactly what you talked about earlier, ingrain pathways that are negative that I'm now going to have to take more time. Every inch forward I do in that negative pathway where they're having to use multiple areas of the brain to, to process, language, process written text. I've got to unlearn that sometime along the way, right? So we're going to keep this conversation going and we're going to drill down a little bit into the, the anatomy and the neurophysiology of those pathways and exactly how the brain forms them, how electric currents go through them. But before we sort of uh, turn away from this conversation, Doc, what are the things that inner armor specifically is doing? We have the visual training, some other parts and pieces that we're doing that really in, enhance this model of development from training to learning to growing? We're setting that base first, the base of growth. We talked about that at the beginning. Okay. Like my capacity on all three of these levels is really going to be dependent on what my autonomic nervous system is doing. And it all goes upstream up to the autonomic nervous system. Any learning that's going to happen any behavioral interaction, any emotional, any psychological is all going to start upstream. And if that autonomic nervous system is not balanced, 
we're never going to see what that person's true potential is. Even in somebody that we think is at the highest level they can be, if upstream their autonomic nervous system is out of balance, then we're not getting all the potential that's in that brain and their body. And that's where we want to start. And then one of those components, apart from the autonomic nervous system, that's super important is the visual component, like we've talked about throughout this podcast. That has to be very well coordinated. And that's really what Inner Armor brings and the concierge service from Royer Neuroscience, because there's a lot of ways out there that you can work on developing skills and behaviors. But as you always say, those are downstream. What we're really trying to do is increase the capacity yes. to develop those skills and behaviors by working upstream from the autonomic nervous system, which is that sort of hidden involuntary a below the hood backstage system that sort of makes everything work that we're not aware of. And we're going to continue talking about that in our next conversation here because we're going to really talk about the electrical currents that flow through the brain, how and why they flow through the brain, how ion channels and mm -hmm. gates work, and really get down to maybe even talking about some things like the anatomy of a panic attack. So uh, look forward to that next conversation, Doc. Sounds great. This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment. You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com.